You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you're interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at 2 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of Us needs and appreciates all your support. This episode of Digital Noise is brought to you by Film Movement Plus. The streaming service Film Movement Plus opens up a world of award-winning entertainment, including some of the best films from around the globe. Among the hundreds of titles waiting for you to discover are some of the best films from 2020, including The Wild Goose Lake, Zombie Child, and more. Available on Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire, as well as streaming online and on mobile, Film Movement Plus is priced at $5.99 a month. But, as a listener of Digital Noise, Film Movement Plus will give you a 30-day free trial, plus the next three months at 50% off when you use the promo code NOISE. Sign up today at filmmovementplus.com. This Digital Noise episode also is a video version for subscribers at the brown coat level or above. Become a subscriber and get the extended video version. It's true, it's the Blues Brothers here, 2021! John Golson and Chris Cox here to review all the Blu-rays and 4Ks and DVDs. Oh, wow, the Blues Brothers. So are you John Goodman or Joe Morton? Wow, it's hard to tell in this particular scenario, isn't it? I don't know. I'm going to go with, I'm, I'm definitely not Dan Aykroyd, so... It's yeah. It's like uh, the uh, I, I've seen that I've seen that one once. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, we're classic Blues Brothers. Classic. Yeah. Not Blues Brothers two thousand. The <laughs> new millennium. We're not. We're Blues Bull Brothers twenty twenty one. Blues Brothers twenty twenty one. Yeah, we're the new one. Yeah. The all new. Yeah. Look how exciting we are. You guys can't wait to see us do our big musical number. It's coming. It's going to be great at the end of the show. I backflipped into the room and sat down on this chair, but you missed it because the camera didn't start until I was already. Yeah, seated. I should have pressed record earlier. So, it was, it was, in, yeah. it was a thing of beauty. I gotta tell you, it happened. That's the first time I think you've ever sang us on. Oh, in, in all the episodes we've done together, I think that's the first time you've ever like I'm gonna I'm gonna sing us on. So I was a little bit like, oh what's, wait, Chris is singing. Like, <laughs> what is what's happening here? Sorry about that. Yeah, I do that from time to time on the regular reviews. I believe it's been a while for a digital noise. And as you said, not with you. I promise to keep it to a bare minimum in the future for the mental health of you everyone. Just sing all the titles. No, I'm not doing that. That's. Uh, okay. I mean, you can if you want. Do you want to sing about our first title, The Day of the Beast? The Day of the Beast. There we go. It was Vegasy. Thank you. Not, I, it sounded like it needed to be. I just, I let the title take me to where it needs to go. I thought maybe you'd go something more, you know, Spanish or something, something, you know. Oh, uh, no, I'm I'm too much of a gringo. 
I wasn't even going to try. Yeah, I wouldn't. I, I would just end up offending somebody if I did. Uh, you know, the Day of the Beast is one of those films I've been waiting for a really good copy of this to come out. I mean, I would have been happy with just Blu-ray, but like, there's been. I had to. We reviewed this on Del- Deliberations of Doom, our horror show, way back. And I was so excited to show it to my fellow critics and I had to go like rent a copy and then give them all the copy. <laughs> Here you go. Uh, uh, on DVD. It's one of those films when I discovered it, it kind of created a love affair with me for director Alex de la Iglesia, who recently did a show on HBO that's getting a lot of acclaim, 30 Coins, which I really liked quite a bit. I don't know if you got a chance to watch that one. No, but I've heard only good things. Yeah, quite good. But Day of the Beast, although not his first film is the one that is generally considered to be the one that made him like a name, a big star. The Spanish black comedy horror from 1995 is a strange little uh, religious comedy horror. And I actually really, I, I could tell you just from the top of my head, the whole plot of this thing, I've seen it like seven times now, but like now it's on 4k and I want to hear John describe what the plot is of this film. Oh, uh, the plot is a priest in a uh, kind of a, although metal doesn't really fit into the plot, he's sort of a metalhead, yeah. a priest and a metalhead that collaborate together. Um, they they end up um, sort of terrorizing this uh, this guy who positions himself as like an occult expert in an effort to uh, bring about a physical manifestation of the devil. Right. And the reason being yeah. because the priest has figured out through an interpretation, a mathematical interpretation of, of uh, Apocrypha that he has nailed down the exact time and date of the end of the world, the birth of the Antichrist. And he has, he has 24 hours to stop it. But to stop it, he's got to do it by getting outside of the devil's notice at some level because, or and basically not be just a good man, a priest, by committing evil everywhere he can. So he's just doing dumb shit, like taking change from like a homeless guy's bucket and stuff and just being a, a dick. But he's not good at it. <laughs> he doesn't really know how. Shoplifting. To, yeah, he doesn't know how to be a dick. So he's like, okay, I'm just doing the best I can. <laughs> it's a strange little film with a lot of extremely colorful characters in it. Uh, the guy who is the metalhead in here who I, this guy is a right. And he wasn't even supposed to be, uh, he wasn't even up for the role initially. There's a bunch of bonus features here that go into all that as well. But um, he is a, yeah, a harmless metalhead slash sort of Satanist. Like one of those, I'm a Satanist because I'm a metalhead metalheads, you know, it's like a big overweight dork basically. Uh, he is so utterly lovable on this thing. He's just charming. I can't believe there was never a spinoff, but it launched the career of the actor in question playing him where he went on to do some other bigger things and have his own name after this, whereas he was, like I said, a guy before this who wasn't really an actor. It's kind of new to all this. Whereas the guy playing the priest, Angel, uh, Alex Angula was somebody who the director had worked with a number of times on other projects and, and appeared in his film before this Action Mutants, which I really hope they put a 4K version out of soon as well, which is really good. And uh, and a short film, which is actually included here as a bonus feature uh, on the the 4K is just the movie. The Blu-ray that comes with it as well has all the bonus features here. But yeah, there's a, there's a, uh, a short film, Marin, Marindas, Assassinus, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly or not, which is a Spanish about 13 minute short where 
this he plays a guy who goes into a bar and just starts killing everyone who just even vaguely offends him at all in the bar uh in a neurotic crazy way which is a funny little horror short but i don't know john i'm curious to know what you think about this one for me this is kind of like a one of those hidden gem movies where i when i found it i was so excited and wanted to show it to everybody so I'm curious from you. I know you're trying to bounce it to me. I want to know, like, when you first saw it, how did you discover it? Uh, Vulcan Video, I believe. It was just one mm-hmm. of those ones. It was on the shelf. I went, oh, that looks interesting and rented it. You know, it was in those days when I used to leave Vulcan Video with like 10 fucking movies at once and I'd be done inside of like a few days. <laughs> yeah. So did you see it in the 90s? Uh, yeah, probably early 2000s is more likely. Okay. I was just curious. Um, I, you know... I watched, we're going to get around to it, um, Pretty to Durango. I watched that first, Mm -hmm. and then I watched this, and I've only previously seen The Last Circus. Mm -hmm. Um, Films by this director, to say. Yeah, it was left a little, uh, it kind of just left a little cold by, by, left a little cold by Last Circus, left a lot cold by Pretty to Durango. which we'll get to this one. I liked it more than those other two, but I don't connect with this filmmaker. I don't think in the way that other people do. And I think the reason why I think that his, his characters are, are very lively. They feel his world feels lived in. His characters are interesting. The, his movies are very well shot. Um, but he kind of maintains, um, his movies are all sort of cranked up to 11 and maintain from beginning to end at that frequency. And it's, (laughs) I don't, I, it's a little bit of a challenge for me and I don't know why there's a, it reminds me a little bit of, um, and it's not even, you'll wonder probably why I'm even making this comparison, but Brian Yuzna, the the horror director, Brian Yuzna, sure. like the difference between like a Stuart Gordon and a Brian Yuzna to me is that a Stuart Gordon film has quieter moments and ups and downs. And a Brian Yuzna film tends to maintain the same sort of like level of energy and pacing, no matter what's going on. And I think that's my deal with his movies is that they, they sort of start really like intense and then they sort of like maintain a certain a frantic intensity. Mm-hmm. There's something about all of them that I've seen that feel like things could go to hell at any given moment. And it, it creates an interesting tension that underlines, but there's like, I, I, it, I find that tension for me, sometimes movies like that will have me on the edge of my seat. Other times I find it dulling. And in his movies, I tend to find them a little dulling, which doesn't mean that the movies are dull. It means that there's something about them that it's like, I want a change in pitch and frequency and tone. Mm. I crave that from when I'm, when I'm watching his stuff. I want, I want shifts and everything just kind of maintains across all, you know, and I'm judging somebody by three movies. Mm-hmm. But like I said, I did like this one the most. And, and it is the example of the kind of movie that's a miss for me as a critic but that I don't think is a bad movie. And those things happen sometimes where it's just a matter of just like, I, I am not getting a foothold on this. I'm not connecting to it. I'm entertained enough and it's just missing me for whatever reason. 
It's a, and there's nothing much harsher to say. Yeah, it's know? a very definition of a cult film, you know, and, mm-hmm. and cult films, no matter who you are, are going to either, you know, I mean, it's, it's totally unclear whether that's going to work for you because they are not traditional narratives on any level. I mean, there's plenty of cult films people love and go, oh, it's one of the greatest cult films ever made. And I'm like, I just can't connect with it. And there are other ones that I'm in the minority on. I'm like, that's one of my favorites. Uh, this is one of my favorites, but... Uh, I definitely see why it wouldn't be for everyone. My one complaint about this film at all is that I don't think it really sticks the landing. It's kind of like, okay. Oh, man. It looks like a freaking digitized, like an MPEG or something at the end, the big special effects finale. Yeah. Even though this Blu-ray looks really good. or 4K. And I'd watch the Blu-ray, okay. not the 4K. But um, that I would imagine it's a transfer thing that even in 4K, that end, that special effects sequence, it's obvious they're on green screen and that sort of thing. But the quality of the elements was also like very, very pixelated. It's, it's dated like, for sure. I'm, noticeably. So. I mean, I can't say much. I'm rewatching Babylon five right now. So <laughs> going through that every time, every new episode, like, wow, that does not look great. But, uh, I meant more like storyline wise. Like there's a point where like, okay, this is the end of the story. And then I was like, wait, what happened? Oh, yeah. <laughs> kind of unclear. What exactly how, did we win? I think we won. I don't know. But there's a lot of bonus features here. Like I said, the 4K is just the 4K alone. But there's uh, something I really loved watching, a feature-length documentary, Heirs of the Beast, which goes is not one of those just... A lot of times stuff like this is just like, well, here's all the behind-the-scenes stuff, and we didn't do anything with it. It's just it. Mm-hmm. And this is actually an assembled, well-made documentary about the making of this thing that's really fascinating, both about what was going on in Spain in the 80s and 90s and how this movie even got made and what the effect was of this movie. There's lots of interviews with other really well-known Spanish directors that come out and talk about how this film was a huge influence on them. And it's really a fascinating sort of putting this film in the context of Spanish horror and how Spanish horror really became a thing not too long after this. I mean, definitely came into its own. Uh, And uh, yeah, well worth your time alone. There's an interview with Alex de la Iglesia, Antichrist superstar for 30 minutes. There's the man who saved the world for 20 minutes, which is the interview with actor Armando de Raza. There's Beauty and the Beast, 17 minute interview with actress Maria Grazia Cucinata, who has a kind of small role in this, but she's really notable, mainly because of the red dress she's wearing. Uh, Shooting the Beast, a two and a half minute interview with the director of photography, uh, the short film I mentioned earlier, Miranda's Assassinus, and then trailers. But yeah, I, I, and for me, I had a great time with this. But I'm curious to know, I had never seen, but was well aware of the existence of Perdita Durango from him. It was one of those I could just never find a copy of it anywhere. And I, I had been looking. The only copies I could find were on VHS. I was like, ah, I don't want to want a VHS of this. I'll wait sooner or later. Somebody, this guy's you know, definitely his getting bigger over time. And it took a while. I mean, now he's got an Mm. HBO show, which is getting great numbers. But I mean, The Last Circus, which I loved as well, like I said, I'm kind of a stan for for Eli Iglesias, uh, was like, like hit festivals all over the world. So it was like, okay, that was a big expansion of what he was doing. Witching and Bitching was a big film for him. So it was like, this guy's steadily increasing his awareness outside of Spain. Perdido Durango was a very early film for him 1997 uh this is based on a novel by barry gifford called uh 59 and raining the story of perdita durango now if anyone out there is going that that name 
what does that name mean? Perdita Durango? It was released, by the way, here as Dance with the Devil uh, in like a very crappy, very cut version. Uh, I remember it was at Blockbuster at one point. It was, I had to been told, don't rent it. It's cut to pieces. They cut so much out of it. I was like, okay, I'd rather not see a film than see one that's, that's slaughtered like that. But if you know the name, it's because the character Perdita Durango was originally a in a, another film based on another book in the series by Barry Gifford that was uh, called Wild at Heart. <laughs> that was uh, obviously a pretty well-known film there. And that was, oh, and I'm blanking on who it is that played the role. Do you remember? Uh, uh, Isabella Rosalini. Isabella Rosalini. And she's a small part of the film, but an intense part. She's a crazed, violent extreme Spanish chick and here a young Rosie Perez like I've never in my life seen a Rosie Perez movie where I was like mm, damn girl you're hot I've never been that guy for Rosie Perez I've always she's like Fran yeah. Dresch, Spanish Fran Drescher I'm like Ugh, I don't know I mean you're not a terrible actress or anything but I don't look at you and think hot she is hot here and she is playing the same role in kind of a different way She's gone to Mexico to scatter the ashes of her sister who has died. And there she ends up meeting up with Javier Bardem with the worst haircut he's ever had in his entire career. Oh, my God. It's so bad. You have to pause it just to go just to laugh and point at it. It's so terrible. Who is this crazy bank robbing, drug dealing, Santa Ria sacrifice and blood performing guy. And these guys have sort of a, a meat hate. Like where he's like just shamelessly hitting on her and she's like, fuck off. But she's playing along because she actually does kind of like him. But they they kind of team up and uh, he's been working for a gangster, Mr. Santos, played by Don Stroud, where he's transporting refrigerated human fetuses to Las Vegas for cosmetic moisturizer, which I'm sure is a thing that really happens. Anyway, so... During the length of this, okay, we are going to help me do this. We're going to do this thing together and make a bunch of money. He decides that as part of his ceremonies, which it's never quite clear to the degree to which he believe and believes in it or not, it's clearly a scam to get money from Spanish people, mm -hmm. like poor Spanish people, but at the same time, it seems like maybe he kind of believes in it. But he says, okay, we're going to kidnap a, a virgin and you know, or some innocent person, and then we're going to sacrifice him. And he ends up kidnapping this geeky college kid, Dwayne, and his girlfriend, Estelle. Just this cute, kind of yuppie, very blonde couple. And they're, believe it or not, they're along for the whole ride, always telling them, you know, it's kind of like the, the, the princess bride. Good night, sleep tight, I'll likely kill you in the morning. <laughs> and slowly there's a little bit of Stockholm Syndrome as these characters sort of are... Like, not sure if they're going to survive this or not, and their own relationship is questioned. But uh, it's a series of just wacky, violent situations as this film goes along. And I 100% understand, John, that you did not care for this. But I got to tell you, I kind of fell in love with it. I, I really, really liked it a lot. It's, it's, if, it's somewhere between Quentin Tarantino and David Lynch in terms of style. It's not as good as either filmmaker <laughs> and it would be hard to nail down the ways in which it even is that but i kept going oh that's very lynchy oh that's very tarantino y i think there's an audience for this for sure that never got a chance to even encounter it because it was so barely released here but i think if you like stuff like um the oliver stone tarantino one natural born killers this is something i could see you really liking yeah, I think that I was thinking about Natural Born Killers. Uh, what was it? Love in a 45. Mm -hmm. 
the some of those nineties like couple on the run type crime movies. This is a really um it's it's got a a thread of dark humor that runs throughout it. Um if it didn't have that, I think it would be a really incredibly difficult film to watch. As it is, it's a film full of like it's very transgressive it's full of like rape and violence and uh and witchcraft and all kinds of stuff um and it's but it's like sort of gleeful at the same time it's so absurd Um, it's hard to like like you say rape and immediately people like i'm not watching that and i'm like yeah in the context of it it's just all so silly it's hard for me to like go rape with a capital r and i know that even then that might offend people saying that but it's just they're just such terrible fucking people, but in a weird comic booky way. Yeah, the movie's very amused by all of its own shenanigans. Yeah. Like, it's sort of a it's sort of a, a case of like a movie being high off its own supply. <laughs> it's sort of like it it very much it it is very much in love with what it's doing and doesn't really care <laughs> whether you like it or not. It's true. It's it, it you know, it's a case of like, well, we're having fun. We don't care about whether you're having fun watching it. Um I got it. Uh I I, I this if if <laughs> if the other one wasn't for me, this definitely wasn't for me, but again, if somebody like, you know, you like it, I don't think you're crazy for liking it. It has all of the same earmarks that make his other movies what they are. Mm. There's a definite like auteur stamp on his stuff. Yeah. I can see his stuff and recognize it has a, it has a certain look. The characters behave a certain way. It has certain rhythm. Like, and I can recognize that all of those things are in P- pretty to Durango, even if I personally found it a little bit beyond my line <laughs> of like repulsiveness. <laughs> I did finish it. Um, <laughs> uh, and again, it, and it, and it, you know, I, it's interesting to watch Javier Bardem and um, Rosie Perez. Rosie Perez at the time, I'm trying to think when she was Oscar nominated for Fearless. I want to say that was like early 90s, like 91 or 92. So she was she was still somewhat fresh from Oscar noms. Uh, and then Javier Bardem wasn't on anybody's, no. you know, radar, really. So it's interesting to see... Um, to see these actors and and we didn't mention James Gandolfini, yeah, playing a DEA um, agent determined to track down the couple, and he also very young, and even I would describe him as thin by comparison. And a really strong screen presence. I mean, duh, he's James Gandolfini, but right. uh, you know, he's one of he is one of those people. We've talked about certain people that you just watch when they're on screen, and he is a guy that when he's on screen, your eyes can't go to where he yeah. is. Yeah. Uh, a very small role by Damien Bashir in here as well has a small role it's like oh and then director alex cox who loves to do cameos in other people's films yeah <laughs> john rolls his eyes i could even hear your eyes rolling there okay are you not an alex cox guy either uh I, no alex cox is fine alex cox is fine but you're right he shows up in more movies than he uh makes i wish he was I, I, I don't know well i say he wish he was more prolific but I, his stuff even with me is hit and miss oh yeah so. i mean like he I someone tell me a film in the last twenty years Alex Cox did that's worth watching because I've watched a couple and they were all like, "How is this the same guy who made Repo Man and Sid and Nancy?" I don't understand. 
Hence my eye roll. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, there are some extra features here. There's, uh, once again, on the Blu-ray, not the 4K, on the border, interview with the director for 28 minutes. There's writing Perdita Durango, 16 and a half minute interview with Barry Gifford, the original writer of the novel and the screenplay. Dancing with the Devil, an interview with actress Rebecca McKendry. Narco Satanicos? <laughs> Perita Durango in the Matamoros cult, which takes a look at the real life events where a college student was abducted by a um, a Mexican cartel. Oh, that was a real big deal in Texas. Yeah. Like that was a that yeah, I remember when that was all over the and uh, did a basically sacrificed him, cut him to pieces for in a satanic ceremony. Like I said whenever you look into like the satanic panic stuff, there's like one example that's real ever. <laughs> And that's it. <laughs> the rest are just hysteria. And this is the one real. Okay, that actually happened. So this is like influenced by that, but not based on it, if you will. Uh, there's Canciones de Amor Maldito, the music of Perdita Durango with the composer Simon Boswell. And they're shooting Perdita Durango, an interview with Flavio Labiano and two trailers. But that is Perdita Durango. And that ends the segment of the show where we talk about Alex de la Iglesia's films. But we are going to continue on with another film also set out by Severin, who put out or, or just lately been putting out some 4K stuff. I'm very excited about the titles they've been choosing. I was only excited in the context of this title in that I can't believe this exists. I hear it's terrible, but who has, who has not seen Klaus Kinski in Nosferatu wouldn't want to see a sequel, right? There's, there's actually two sequels to Nosferatu, both made by different people that, you know, Herzog had absolutely nothing to do with. Look, Klaus Kinski was quantifiably insane and dangerously insane. Nosferatu in Venice, also titled Vampire in Venice, but this new 4K, or I'm sorry, Blu-ray is titled Nosferatu in Venice, with him playing the same character, but he refused to put on the bald wig and the prosthetic, so he's just got long hair instead, is right in the middle of when he was at his, no pun intended, batshit craziest. It just so out of control that they just had to shut down the production at one point of this film because no one could control him. He sexually assaulted his actress, which is which caused everything to shut down until he apologized. Which, God, today, like that, he'd be in jail. He, he was uh, not a good guy, but he was definitely he's one of those people who was famous and successful and respected for his performances in film, of which there are many. That no one would be the one to tell him you can't act that way. And and you know people talk about like you cancel culture is like the hot button topic, mm -hmm. and I didn't realize. Until I was, I watched the movie and then was reading up. I didn't realize that, and not to derail anything, his autobiography, he talks about molesting his daughter, not Natasha, but Natasha's sister. Right. And Natasha's sister supports that and says, yes, he molested me from the time I was a little girl until, until basically, you know, late teens, adulthood. And the fact that he was still able to get work after he admitted it in his autobiography and people brushed it off as like, oh, ha ha. Like right. he's, he's, he's wild. He's a wild well, man. Cause there was it's a like, lot of stuff. And how could people not, how, how is he still getting work? I think part of it was, and I think there about, was a lot of stuff in his autobiography that was immediately proven to not have happened. It was just his, yeah. like his weird imagination. So I think people wrote off that as well as something that was just not true, but it turned out it's, it was. It's amazing to me that somebody could be such a holy terror on set and yet still get employed mm -hmm. that that's cr it, like 
it's so crazy to me that he wouldn't have been seen as untouchably toxic instead of just like, instead of, as we learn in the documentary that's on this, in this Which set, is the main reason. A lot of times, <laughs> yeah, a lot of times his, his role was tied up with financing yeah. and it was like, no, he's the reason why we're giving you this money so you can't get rid of it. Well, and I'm like, how did he ever get himself in that position? This film was... Being the terror that he This did. film was famous for being the one, like I said, that was un... It was unfinished and that they had to come in and just assemble like, the goddamn thing as best yeah. as they could. And I'd always like four or five directors. Yeah, well, there's like two officially listed, but yeah, other people came mm-hmm. in as well. And, and Klaus Kinski himself insisted on directing some of the stuff in here. And I was expecting a bigger mess than it is. At worst, it's kind of dull and points where you're like, huh? But it's nowhere near the train wreck I was hoping it was going to be. It's pretty yeah. sometimes. Yeah, I mean, like, it's in Venice, it's, so what are you going to do, you know? It's But it's like, it's, it, there's, it, it was so, it was photographed well, which took me by surprise, because a lot of times with schlock, it's, it's ugly. Like, it's just, it's cheap. It's made cheap. It looks cheap. And this was like, oh, this is kind of like, this is sort of like very, these, these like gothic horror shots are kind of working for me yeah um, I'm it's a you. pretty movie and it doesn't hurt when you know the the van helsing-ish type character here british professor paris catalano is played oh. by christopher Plummer, who has come to venice looking like ray ghoul rolling up with his <laughs> right. green cloak with the gold chain i right. was like he would have been a perfect ray ghoul anyway sorry so, this, <laughs> I this is during carnival which it literally was filmed during carnival and it was supposed to be that was like the big oh we're gonna save a lot of money by the fact we can just film during carnival in, in venice and it'll be like all these crazy people in costumes and it'll be great and then of course kinski fucked up a lot of it because he like basically they had gotten a guy dressed up like him in the original movie like to be filmed in these scenes from the side or from behind or what have you to be interactive with the people in carnival. They filmed a bunch of stuff where Kinski was even scheduled to be on set. And then Kinski shows up and goes, no, I'm, I'm not going to put on the the effects. I'm just going to have long hair. And there's literally just nothing you can do at, at this point to, to fight him or the film is just no more and money is lost. Anyway, upshot is, is that he believes uh, Christopher Plummer that this, that Nosferatu wants to die and actually be dead. And it's just that hard to kill him. And that, there's this family there that believes that there's a legend that the vampire's trapped in a tomb in the basement. He's not really, but there's like, also there's a going with the traditional Dracula thing that like the daughter, the older daughter looks exactly like Nosferatu's long lost love and yada, yada. Nosferatu wakens, wakes from sleep, goes after her. Anyway, the plot is kind of, who cares? It's not that big a deal, but it is really well shot. And honestly, the real reason to get this, as you mentioned earlier, is there's a terrific sort of companion piece feature film called Creation is Violent about Kinski and his final years. That, Like I say, companion piece to Herzog's own My Best Fiend, which is a documentary about him working with him. So this is sort of almost a sequel to that, which is like post Kinski uh, or post Herzog work. Kinski at that point, the last five, six years of his life as he was doing these sort of a lot of cheapies, interviewing all the directors mm-hmm. and actors who've worked with him who are being weirdly forgiving of his behavior during it. I kept going, like, there was an actress on one of his other films, like, yeah, he kept grabbing my boobs and stuff, and, and she's just laughing. I'm yeah. like, what? How are you laughing about that? But it's, regardless, a revealing and interesting documentary about one of the most difficult actors ever to work in film. And I think it, I think it's worth it 
this is worth picking up just for that, quite frankly. Yeah, it's baffling. I, and, and, you know, the question I kept coming back to was how he was never a marquee star. How did he get himself into this power position where he was untouchable? Yeah. That's the part that to me is the most baffling. And even the conversations that they have with the people who worked with them in that doc don't necessarily, there's not enough historical context to get to how did he get to that position where he was unfireable. Um, and it's nuts the things that they have to do, the workarounds they have to do to accommodate his whims um, and his moods and behaviors. Um, you know, it, it makes me think of like times I've been on set where I thought like asking for a place to sit down was too yeah, much. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh no, here's a person who literally terrorized people to the point where they were all, they, everyone wanted to get rid of him and they just couldn't. How did he end up there? That's, that's the, that was the part I wanted answered more than any other thing. Um, yeah, he's a, he's a monster. He's a, he's a bizarre aberration in the history of film and that there's no question. Some of his performances are so mesmerizing and intense that no one else could have done them. And you can't take your eyes off him. I don't, for a second question is capacity as an, as an actor when he chooses to, to actually act. But he was the fact he was allowed to continue on working for as long as he did. Yeah. And the weirdest part about all this is the documentary at the end when he kind of retired to like a cabin and like he became friends with everyone at the post office and they're all just have nothing but the nice things to say about him. They're like, oh, we love him. He was so charming. Well, he never sexually assaulted me. Right. I know. I know. I have not defended Glaskinski, <laughs> believe me. Oh, my God. Anyway, there's two outtakes for from the documentary here that add up to about 10 minutes or so. And then the original trailer here. I mean. It's a curiosity. The original Nosferatu is really good. Uh, obviously, the original original is really good, but uh, the Herzog's and Kinski's Nosferatu is really good. This is not really good, but it's not anywhere near as terrible as I thought it was going to be. It's definitely watchable. It's just disturbing when you know what was going on behind the scenes. But we're going to move on to yeah. something else here with a film called The Interrogation, which is kind of a landmark, which an Israeli director for the very first time is doing in this narrative film, but that's supposedly very closely based on what actually happened is getting to show the voice of this major Nazi Rudolf uh, Franz Ferdinand Haas, who is the commander of the Auschwitz concentration camp. And this is based on Haas's own autobiography that he wrote while once he was in prison. And this is recreating the final interrogation of him before he was ended up being executed. And that sounded like a tremendous premise to me. I was like, wow, I read a lot of stuff about World War II. I, I find the whole, I, I think it's that I can't believe that it happened. I'm still just, I think it's so startling that it happened, but I think this, because of that, it has so many lessons to teach us about our own world and human psychology and stuff. So I find it very interesting for that reason. Uh, the interrogation I expected to be more revealing on this, and I suppose maybe it was for some, but I got to tell you, for me, there were all these long breaks with the interrogator in question going and hanging out with his wife and just doing nothing that I'm like, why isn't this film better? <laughs> this is one of the hardest films I think I've ever had to review in all of digital. Wow. Marks because you don't want to denigrate like, 
the work of someone trying to capture like sort of a historical record. And this is anti-cinema. Like this is not a movie and I'm sorry. Like (coughs) it's not a movie. It's, it's, it's sort of at best it's a stage play, but even then I don't think it's dramatic enough to be a stage play. It really is like watching a transcript. You're watching two people read a transcript and it's, that's not, that that's not a movie and it's not that the two actors are bad but they also don't really unpack anything from from their performances either you don't really walk away with a clear sense of like oh now i understand who he is and why he did it he's just just sort of okay i hear his words like i'm hearing these words Mm -hmm. it lacks there's it lacks punch and it sucks to say that in that like this is real stuff that happened but I have to come at it and go, I'm just judging this as a work of film. Mm -hmm. It did the film succeed at its goals. And I have to answer, no, I don't think it succeeded at its goals. It did not illustrate what it was trying to illustrate. Um, It's, it's a very odd, it's a, it's a noble approach. Um, This should have been a play or something. This doesn't work. This is not. Well, because it's not filmed in a way that's immediate. Uh, it's so static the way this whole thing mm-hmm. is put together. There's never, there's very little camera movement. The, the camera is never intimate with these characters, and it really, really should be. Yeah. Uh, things never become intense in their conversation because the interviewer in question, uh, interrogator in question, is kind of distant. At least his performances mm-hmm. here. And the thing is, is that Haas is one of the most fascinating and most explored of the the Nazis that got interviewed. I mean, the guy actually got a chance to write his whole autobiography. He was very, he was an oddball just in general because he had already retired after World War One, and Heinrich Himmler had uh, like called, basically begged him to come back into service to take in charge of Auschwitz. And he didn't know when he first went there what this was going to, what it was, what it was going to lead to. But it's delving into the part of him that just slowly was just like, well, it's a, it's a job, but you know, and that should be more interesting than it is. I've read a lot about Mm -hmm. this real life, what really happened. And there's so much here that you're like, there's no way you could have made this work dramatically. And they couldn't because it's just dry as paper. Probably the least necessary nude scene I've ever yes. seen in a film ever in my entire life is him is the interrogator going home to he's like brushing his teeth or shaving or something and his there's no dialogue and his wife is taking a shower in the background with no shower curtain so you can see everything and I'm just like what actress signed on yeah. for that thing are we part are to we, be like the naked lady in the I interrogator? Was like, were we supposed to connect that to the the Jewish people in the showers at Auschwitz? Because if so, I don't see how that's supposed to connect outside of the most, you know, simplistic way. It doesn't really yeah, work. Shower equals shower. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you know, this is really talking about the banality of evil. But you know, it's like to paraphrase Nietzsche, don't stare too long into the banality of evil or your film will become banal. (laughs) (laughs) It is what it is. Uh, We'll move on to a Arrow title that came out called Death Has Blue Eyes. Man, a title like that, I'm like, all right, so this has got to be either like a giallo, right? Sounds like a giallo type thing or maybe like um, some just bad 
70s horror film. And it's actually technically a sci-fi spy thriller that's kind of like... Slash buddy comedy? Slash buddy comedy that's kind of like The Fury if it was made in Italy and like wanted to do James Bond stuff. I don't know. John, you're going to have to describe this one. So there's these two, these two dipshits. <laughs> they're hustlers and they're both kind of dumb and they live to just sort of like... They, they they live to screw and fool around and and rip people off and they're they're two they're knuckleheads right you have these two knuckle you have basically like Ashton Kutcher and Sean William Scott from Dude Where's My Car <laughs> as like yeah. Greek guys yeah. okay and so you have Perfect. these two hustlers that meet this these two women at a hotel and the two women are powerful psychics that are on the run from like shadowy government operatives for knowing too much. And these two dipshits get mixed up with these two women. And it's, it it is like a genre mashup. It's, it's kind of supernatural. It's a buddy comedy. There's very soft core porn. There's whole parts that make you go, Oh wait, is, is this going to be like porny now? And it's like, Oh no, it was just porny for 10 minutes. And then it's like, (laughs) um, it's, it's such a strange mishmash of stuff. And damn, if I didn't find this like grandly entertaining yeah. from top to bottom, I was so, I was so entertained by this goofy movie. It's so goofy. And it, not, I hadn't even thought of dude, where's my car, but Jesus guys, they could remake, make a sequel to Bill and Ted of all these years. I mean, come on guys, the dude, where's my car sequels right here. <laughs> like just take this and go with it as far as where that, what, what that would be. And yeah, it's so baffling the way that like, I, I get sent a lot of stuff from some of these like tangential, like the not the big distributors, but companies like Arrow and stuff that mm-hmm. every once in a while they put out these st- stuff that are like, oh, this is just softcore porn. This is not my thing. And this film kept making me think, oh, geez, it's just going to be one of those. And it will be for like five minutes. And you're like, OK, this is like a bunch of like uh, two sexy 70s people romping around in the sheets. But then we'll do something really fucking weird and cool. And you're like, like not cool in a traditional way, cool in a what the fuck way that I, I you, you're like, okay, I gotta admit this film has my attention. Yeah. It's, it, that's the, that's the trick with this like Euro trash stuff, right? Is a lot of times you have a couple cool scenes and then it's, it's honestly like there's something, there's a lot of them that are just dull. There's a lot of seventies grindhouse, no matter whether it came from America or Europe that it has a it's like oh we sold it on this one thing we can put in a trailer and the rest of it's boring as hell this movie is like it's it's never boring and it it something's constantly moving I actually think that the action in it is pretty well executed as well like the car chases and things like that are like pretty well done it's uh yeah I this was a surprise to me from top to bottom because again I put it on thinking it was going to be some, I didn't know anything about it at all. And just judging from the title, I went, this is going to be another one of those like giallo adjacent cop thrillers or something like that, yeah. you know? And it was so different right off the bat. Cause I was like, Oh wait, these two guys are dumb. Like <laughs> these are dumb hustlers. Like our lead characters right away are like they're comedy characters, but the movie's not necessarily a comedy. It's just the two leads are definitely like comedy characters yeah. in this plot that is so much bigger and more sinister than <laughs> what you'd expect from like a dumb buddy comedy movie it, uh, yeah I, it's yeah. like they it, it feels like and this has happened in a couple other examples in, in history but one of those things that like they sold it as a soft core quickie 
and mm-hmm. somebody had bigger eyes than the budget and was like, no, I have this grand vision. We still got to do the softcore quickie stuff, but I have this great idea. This is going to be a, like a cool classic people will talk about for years. And they didn't, but maybe they should have. I, I mean, I, this, I'm, don't get me wrong. This is not a good film, but it's a great bad film. It's one of those like, oh man, bring your friends, have a couple beers, you know, like it's a fun little weird slice of Italian Z-grade cinema that is well worth checking out. Um, and Arrow's put out some good stuff here. This is a debut feature from Greek director Nico Masterakis, and there is actually a new interview feature out with him. There's a new interview with actress Maria Alaferi, stars in this. There's Dancing with Death tracks, separated tracks from the soundtrack. Original theatrical trailers, image gather, gallery, um, a reversible sleeve with new artwork on one side and the original poster from the other. And then the, if you get the first pressing, there's an illustrated collector's booklet that comes as well. But yeah, I mean, it's it's not going to be for everyone, John. We both know that. But I think both of us fit right into the sort of like, this is my kind of goofy, fun little discovery I was reminded of like Weird Wednesday or like a festival screening. Like if if you would have caught this, if 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 in some repertory screening of this, if you watch this with the crowd, I think everybody would leave just like that was a blast. You know, uh, no matter how cheap and chintzy it's like, I still think that I I would not be surprised to find that it plays great with a crowd. I I uh, I hope that someone who plays strange films in uh, in select film markets plays it on the big screen, I might go back and see it. Yeah, I'm with you 100%. I would totally see this with the crowd. It's just, yeah, I don't know. Like, I'm... I don't know. I I want to. I don't want to like over exaggerate its charms, but I don't want to under exaggerate it either. So I'm just going to move mm-hmm. on and talk about two. The next two films are films that have been on my bucket list to see like forever, like well, thirty years, and just never got around to either one of them. But both of them, hey, they got sent out. But we're going to start off with the first one here. This is a movie that was considered by fans to be a at least a thematic sequel to. Cameron Crowe's Fast Times in Ridgemont High. And I completely agree with them on that sense, that it is very much a companion piece to that in many ways, I feel like. Uh, If you love Fast Times at Ridgemont High, you're probably going to want to seek out the film The Wildlife, which is, warning, nowhere near as good as Fast Times at Ridgemont High. But it contains so many of the same elements to it and so many of the same type of young actors from the time, very likable act, young actors that, and, and written by Cameron Crowe, that it's, I feel completely worth seeking out. The story here, which features Chris, Chris Penn, Leah Thompson, uh, Elon Mitchell Smith, who you're like, wait, who is that? That's Wyatt from Weird Science, for the record. He's only was in a handful of films, but starring role in this one. Uh, Jenny Wright, who, you know, I mean, uh, she was like the main love interest in uh, Near Dark, which is what I always know her from. From Well, uh, Eric Stoltz, Rick Moranis, Randy Quaid. I mean, yeah, that's a huge cast for this time. Like, how did I never see the wildlife? Well, it's deals with these teenagers. They're like still high school kids. Uh, Bill, Eric Stoltz, he's just graduated. He's just gotten his first apartment. He's excited about it. Still trying to figure out how he's going to pay for it. Uh, He's got a younger brother, Jim, which is Wyatt from Weird Science, Ellen Michael Smith, who is weirdly obsessed with Vietnam. He's like a Vietnam stan. And I knew guys like him growing up, 
that was the one like that was such a specific 80s thing yeah. right like i was like i know this this kid lived literally like this kid lived at the end of my block he would order mail order ninja weapons yep. he wore camo pants and black t-shirts he bought soldier of fortune magazine but he's like 10 yeah. 11 12 <laughs> you know he's like he's like a preteen and i was like this is such a weird 80s character that i've never seen captured on film but totally existed oh totally totally it does, existed. you know i mean i think the internet turned them into dangerous like political and and trolls you know i mean we we dealt mm -hmm. with them invading the capital that's this guy in the age of the internet but back then it was like we used to say about like conspiracy theories they used to be charming and funny and harmless because a handful of idiots believed in them and the rest of us could go oh this is fun to read about and then they became not so funny and charming as the numbers went up of people who believed in them that's kind of like this guy at the time he was just kind of charming uh and so he goes around listening to heavy metal with his boombox, and uh, he hangs out with a Vietnam vet, uh, Charlie, played by Randy Quaid. Uh, Chris Penn plays, uh, he plays the Sean Penn character, basically, from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Just less hippie, more Does frat boy, you know? He's like a jock. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. He's like, he's doing the yeah. same type of stuff. He's like, just wants to party and doesn't care about anything. Yeah. But he's more of a fratty type version of that as opposed to yeah. like the more hippie guy that that, that uh, his brother was playing. And he works with Eric Stoltz at a bowling alley, agrees to be his new roommate, which you know isn't going to work well. R R Moranis is a department store manager that Leah Thompson works at, who is Eric Stoltz's ex-girlfriend who kind of wants to get back with. Uh his her best friend Eileen Jenny Wright is Chris Penn's girlfriend or ex-girlfriend and he wants to get back with her anyway there's a bunch of little mini subplots that all dovetail into each other that are going on and all of them are not I wouldn't say there's a single one of them that plays out satisfactorily here like in any way where I felt like okay that 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 felt like I had closure on that or that it was there was a reason for it to exist but there's lots of little fun charming moments for the film of this era going on I certainly had fun watching it it doesn't it there's nothing they don't find the comedy in it the way Amy Heckerling finds the comedy in Fast Times Agreed. and it's not that there's like it's not that Fast Times is full of jokes but it is full of observations about human behavior and the way teenagers communicate and things like mm. that that are funny. There are some jokes in it, but there's also stuff in it that's just funny because it's situationally funny. And wildlife never finds the funny. And so stuff kind of like just kind of lays there because you can tell that it is a comedy. It's a, it's a comedy in, in genre sticker that you're putting on the box to put it on the shelf at the video store. But there's nothing, none of the humor gels or lands and, and uh, Art Linson, who directed this, um, just can't find it in the script to bring it to life. Neither can the actors. Mm. Um, that's probably my, my biggest knock on it. I kept waiting for it to get really good and it kind of doesn't. It sort of culminates all in a big party that is more cartoony. The party is more cartoony than the rest of it's the movie has it, been. Like it's you, like you see Michael Jackson with a Pepsi walking. It's around basically and like, like if you've seen Bachelor Party, the big party when mm -hmm. it finally when it's at full swing, it's it's that party for all extents and yeah. purposes. It's very very cartoony when the rest of the movie is not. Yeah. Um, it's this is a this is a curio. I think Agreed. this is very much just like you know you had somebody coming off of Fast Times being asked basically to do the same thing again 
and making a good attempt at it. I do think Ellen Mitchell Smith's character is well observed because that character definitely existed. Not to say that the others didn't, but there's something so specific about that reference that's like trapped in a moment in time mm-hmm. that unless you lived through the eighties, you're not going to recognize that kid, but you and I recognize that kid because we lived in the eighties and he was on our block. It may have been you, Chris. It wasn't know. me. I wasn't, the, I you did. weren't watching China. You weren't running home to watch China beach. Every no, night. <laughs> no, I, I, I did in fact go to the military surplus store, but just for the army boots and the army jackets. Cause that's what punk rockers wore back in the day. Oh you yeah. Know? Um, I, I, I wasn't, uh, I, I thought I would, what was my takeaway from this? It was not what I expected. I think the trailers play a, the trailers definitely play up. Oh, it's even got Chris Penn. Look, he's just like Sean Penn. Like the trailers are very much like come back to a fast times at Ridgemont high type experience. And that's not really what this movie is. It's a a much more, (laughs) it's a much more reserved movie uh, other than like a big party in a strip club scene. It's kind of funny if, you know, there's things in Fast Time, the abortion subplot, um, uh, Jennifer Jason Lee even losing her virginity, like that feel very progressive in thoughts and attitudes. There's nothing like that in wildlife. Wildlife actually feels kind of regressive, even when it comes to like sexual politics and stuff. Um, I thought this was, this is okay. Uh, it, it, it didn't, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. I, as far as expectations go, I maybe expected something that was more of like a dumb boner comedy. And it feels weird to say that because again, it has dumb boner comedy moments, but they don't play the same because I don't think Cameron Crowe is even interested in making a dumb boner comedy. Mm -hmm. So even the Porky's type stuff of like, let's all go to the strip club. It's like, that's still being presented by Cameron Crowe. So it's sort of like, is Cameron Crowe horny enough as a writer to pull off the, let's go to the strip club scene. I'm not sure based on his other work that, he is. I think that was probably in there to, you know, cause that's what movies at the time had. Um, it's an oddity. Yeah. It's yeah. It's, it's an oddity. Said it's uh, a curio. And that's, I like that yeah. because that really, it's a fascinating curio for people who are really interested in this period of time and movies and what was happening. And certainly there was a lot of party movies coming out around this time. And, you know, I mean, fast times, it's a classic. It's a, it, it's not unassailable, but it's certainly a classic of the, and a film that influenced the bulk of films that came out after it that were trying to capture what it was doing and failed. And the wildlife is another one trying to do that, but just from the same writer. So that alone is like, wow, I really, even if I've heard it's not very good, I kind of really want to see it. And I think it's rewarding in that context, but if you're hoping it's going to live up on any level to fast times, you're going to be disappointed. Um, Now there is something interesting here specifically with the bonus features here, which include a, a nice little interview with uh, Ellen Michael Smith, uh, Walk the Wild Side, where he talks about his career and being in this film, Radio Spots, theatrical trailer. But the interesting thing and the sad thing is there's an, the audio commentary track is uh, got two people on it with author, disc jockey, Ian Christie, and then the sadly recently dear departed writer, podcaster, Mike McBeardo McPadden, which I know a lot of my friends were friends with. I did not know him personally. I met him in passing at events mm-hmm. in the past, but he was much beloved in, I know specifically the Austin community, but just in the sort of film community and the horror community. And this was the last thing that out there that he did basically. So if you were a friend of his or you like his stuff, then that's a reason to pick this up alone, I suppose. I don't know if this is still the case, uh, but Elon Mitchell Smith ended up 
being like a professor of medieval studies at at Texas A&M yep. and College Station. I don't know if he still he's is. Not. He may have moved on. From he's there, uh, the thing. Uh, the the extra feature with him talks about it, but he has moved to a different state, oh, another okay. college now. But yeah. Yeah, he, he used to, apparently, when he was younger at A&M, start his lectures. This is what I've heard. It's apocryphal. But say, some of y'all are like, where do I know this guy from? I was Wyatt in Weird Science. Okay, get it out. You get five minutes to ask questions. And then you go, okay, we will never speak of this again. <laughs> Which is probably smart. So the other movie that was on my list that I've always wanted to see, I always went, you know what? It's weird that I've never seen this, that finally is getting a proper and really nice release from Paramount Presents in their Paramount Presents series, which fold open the cover and it's got the original poster that's kind of cool. And then the only bonus feature being Leonard Malton talking about it for a few minutes is The Greatest Show on Earth. I'm not, that's not a description. That's literally the name of the film. It's a 1952 American drama film produced and directed by the legendary Cecil B. DeMille. Kai made 70 features between 1914 and 1958. One of the founding fathers of American cinema. And I would say like the defining influence for people like Spielberg who came later and invented the modern day blockbuster. This was kind of the guy who started the blockbuster and, you know, influenced a whole generation of people and not everything he did is great. In fact, in retrospect, a lot of the stuff he did is kind of shallow and not all that terrific, but expensively made with no lack of stars and effects. And The Greatest Show on Earth is often been referred to as the best picture winner that has least deserved winning best picture, which is alone reason for me want to see this film. It's basically a narrative feature around promoting Ringling Brothers Circus, right? It's, yeah, yeah, that is, yes. I mean, yes. it's hard to say that it's anything else but that, really. I mean, it's got one of Charlton Heston's first ever performances here, playing the lead role of the circus manager running the show here. It's got Jimmy Stewart, who spends the entire film in clown makeup, never takes it off, even once to the point where people just don't remember he was even in it as one of the main characters. It also won, there used to be an Academy Award for Best Story. Uh, it won that as as well as Best Picture, but it was nominated for a bunch more, won some Golden Globes. It's one of those films at the time. Everybody, it was the avatar of the day, you know, that everybody was like, oh, everybody went to go see this and was talking about it. And then like 10 years later, everybody was like, was it really any good? I don't know. And watching it, I got to say, I mean. You remember when we did that documentary about a French, a, a Frenchman goes to America yeah. yeah, I can't remember the exact mm -hmm. name of it. Arrow put it out where it was like just all this footage of like stuff in the 50s of America, of like weird little niche parts of America. It's yeah. like that just about the circus. And I found it very involving on that level where it's like this is kind of cool because it was involving the actual Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey circus performers doing their stuff, you know, on camera. Some of the actors involved in this got super fucking serious about this and we're like, no, I'm going to learn how to do this myself and learned how to do like trapeze, advanced trapeze work for this film. Mm -hmm. One of which Cornell Wilde, who was one of those guys who was being kind of figured to be a major star, but he never quite got past a certain level. He was terrified of heights, phobic of heights. And he plays this, you know, major trapeze artist who's been brought into the show as like their new gotcha guy. But the person who previously was there is the gotcha person. Uh, I believe it, it was Betty Hutton. It's kind of like, hey, what you, who's this guy? Why is he stealing my thunder? Which, you know, there's going to be like a romantic thing there, of course, because of course there is. 
Yeah, because there's already, and they bring him in because I guess at the time circuses were already starting to be seen as declassé. Yeah. Because there's an early boardroom scene where they're like, hey, our sales are slipping. Like, people don't go to the circus as much. Honestly, probably the reason they made a circus movie, mm-hmm. too. Like, a big commercial to go to the circus. Yeah. But, yeah, there's, um, it's funny because people think of, like, oh, the circus has only recently become, like, sort of under scrutiny. But if this movie in the 50s was already having scenes of people going, yeah, people aren't interested in the circus. It, it seemed like it had a longer, slower decline than what we've been, uh, what we've been sold. Yeah, and you know, there's stuff in here I like outside of just like I said the thing. Oh, this is kind of cool to look at the inside of a circus that, as it mm. happened in the '50s, how different it was from anything later. That I mean, it's kind of fascinating in a sort of distant sort of way. Most of the characters are just cardboard cutouts, but Jimmy, oh, yeah, it's a Jimmy Stewart manages to inject a little humanity into this thing with his weird little subplot of like a a, a, a surgeon who's on the run from the law, which is why he never takes his clown makeup off because he made a mistake. And, you know, everybody's not terrible. Dorothy Lamore is in here being glamorous and and awesome. Gloria Graham. I mean, Lawrence Tierney is in this. There's a lot of big names, but... In terms of story, it never really comes to much. It is indeed just spectacle and, you know, more of a curiosity in spectacle by today's standards than anything else. So the circus existed because people could bring these exotic acts to to towns that wouldn't be able to see them otherwise. You've never seen an elephant before. You've never seen a lion before. We're going to come. We're going to bring you that. And we're going to bring you more. Not only that, but we're going to have, you know, trapeze artists and blah, blah, blah. So you have this idea of like... Oh, the circus exists to bring you to bring you these things you've never seen, and then this movie exists to kind of bring you the circus. Like it's almost like, well, if the circus doesn't come to your town, don't worry because we filmed twenty minute long. There's a couple like long ass just circus sequences that are literally like a whole circus performance just plugged into the movie where the plot and everything just stops <laughs> so that you can watch the circus. Um, it's other than that, it's a very, it's a very kind of corny melodrama. Um, I think the Jimmy Stewart stuff is, there's a thread there that I kind of wish was like the whole movie. Um, but it's not, uh, and there's also technical things in it that I found really odd. Like, um, (laughs) like I, I understand that the trapeze stuff is going to be green screen. I get that. Like I, I, that is fine. There are scenes where like Jimmy Stewart is just talking to the other lead actress and they're on a green screen and they're just, I'm like, could you guys not set up some bales of hay for them to sit on? Like (laughs) why, why is them just interacting in the circus tent? Also green screen, you know, they're just having conversations. There's dramatic scenes like that, that have like distracting effects work or like Chris, please tell me you noticed this because I, I don't think I'm being nitpicky. Okay. There's all these scenes, the circus, the big circus moments where the, where they could not get the children to laugh or act excited. And there's these bizarre cutaways of like adults clapping and laughing while kids are sitting like stone faced. Yeah. Like no expression at all staring at the circus. And I was like, why did they use that cutaway and why are they cutting to it multiple times? So, and why couldn't they get performances from these kids that act like they're happy to be there? Well, it was so the weird. reason they keep doing those cutaways is because it was cameos. Like everybody you see in those cutaways were people who were like 
moderately well known at the time, even though today you're like, I don't know who those people are. But like they're literally like somebody that stands like talks to his wife for a second about it. That's a cameo of somebody that people knew at the time, you know, and there's some people you're like, oh, that's like Cecil B. DeMille plays one of those parts at one point. But, okay. you know, whatever. I, I, this is another curio. It's another like, hey, I, I guess if you're interested, it, it is interesting this happened. And I agree. I can't believe this thing won Best Picture. But it was a big overblown, like, bring the whole family to the theater, see an event movie thing of its time, you know? I do encourage, not that Paramount listens to Digital Noise, I'm sure. Probably not. I'm sure we have tons of execs from Paramount <laughs> that are like, is the new Digital Noise out yet? You know, um, but if if they exist, <laughs> hey, Paramount, this is a, this is from John to you, Paramount. Um, I really like that you're doing this. I like that you're treating your library as if you care about your own library, because a lot of people consider the library their past and they're fine to farm it out to other people. And while there is value in that, because then those people will take those films and do good things with them. I admire Paramount going, you know what? We've got a hundred years worth of classic beloved films. Let's, let's give these a little nicer presentation. Let's come up with a label. Yeah. Let's put some spit and polish on it. And I, in, in, in the age of streaming, as those kind of library titles become devalued to the masses and they're only valued to a, we're seen as like a, um, a collector niche. Like, uh, yeah. Like a, like a niche. Yeah. I think that this kind of, this kind of treatment is important to not only, not only holding on to film legacy and blah, 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 blah. But I think it just makes your brand look good. Mm -hmm. It makes me have good vibes towards Paramount to know that Paramount loves their own movies. I agree. Agree completely. So, yeah. Uh, so we're going to move on to a modern film, the 2019 comedy drama film directed by Gabriela Cowperthwaite. I'm probably saying that slightly wrong. <laughs> Cowperthwaite. Do you know how it's pronounced? Because I don't know. Cowperthwaite. Cowperthwaite. I, I would say it like you. I would say it like you. I think you pronounced it right. It was just. I, I put the, too much emphasis speed, on cow. The, <laughs> the speed with which it was pronounced yeah, was what fair. made me laugh. Yeah, probably a mistake there. Our Friend. I had actually heard some very good things about this movie, but also when a film, everything about it markets itself like, you will cry. I'm like, oh, for fuck's <laughs> sakes. I don't know, man. Uh, and it's got Jason Siegel, who I've always really liked and stuff uh i i find him charming and he rarely does projects anymore he very picks and chooses his projects so i'm like okay and then uh dakota johnson and of course casey affleck who has been going hopping from one award-winning project to the next for the last several years so i'm like okay i'm decidedly interested here and what this is going to be about and this is a non-linear film that is about the the death of Dakota Fanning, who is a uh, a mom and a wife from Can oh, uh, uh, Dakota, not Fanning. Oh, not Fanning, I'm sorry. Uh, Johnson. Yeah, exactly, Dakota Johnson, of cancer. And we kind of follow, going back and forth in time, but her and Casey Affleck meeting and falling in love and getting married. He was an aspiring journalist. She's a musical theater actress. Uh, and then we also follow the story of Jason Siegel, somebody who was a 
person, a tech person working in the theater with Dakota Johnson who had asked her out and not realizing that she was already in a relationship was like horrified by that, that, you know, he caused discomfort and they ended up becoming friends. And she was like, Oh, I'm going to introduce you to my husband. He's like, he's kind of a stand. She's a very open person. He's kind of a closed off person. And is like, why would I want to meet the guy who hit on you? But surprise, surprise, they, they, famous friendship right off the bat, despite them being very different people. But the film lets you know very early on, she ain't going to make it, (laughs) you know? And our friend means because this guy and his relationship with them, when she starts getting really sick, he moved in with them and was like, I'm here to do whatever it takes to help. While he also is going through his own human arc of like dealing Mm. with who am I? What, what is my, what do I want? Because he's kind yeah. of the guy who's like never really had any big goals or he wants to be a stand up comedian, but he's not working very hard at it. He's kind of a, a slacker is maybe not the wrong term. He just the right term, but he just doesn't know what he wants to do. And I think in the end, Siegel is by far the most fascinating character in this film that his arc is surprisingly interesting. But it's not really till towards midway through the second act, we really start getting into who he is and his own struggle, even if it's tertiary to the primary story happening here which is indeed tears inducing i know i did in fact cry watching this towards the end i found this whole thing because all three of these characters were very deeply explored and very real i found this very affecting and i think that we're often non-linear films of this sort i find the non-linear thing a cheap stunt i don't think you could have made this film as well as you as they did without the way they chose to do it mm-hmm I agree. I wish that there was a little bit more of uh, they. Yeah, I agree. I was going to say I wish that, that they provided more bearings, but I think that they didn't. Don't they tell you every time when they change time? Yeah. Don't they tell they you? Say they say on screen what the they tell you every what time. What the date is? Yeah. Yeah. I know they do it sometimes, but I felt like it was more judicious. They always say how long before or after it was from the diagnosis of cancer. Yeah. And that, that, so each of the other events is placed in the context of that. So sometimes that was what my deal was. You couldn't tell when those things happened because they weren't measured against. So sometimes things that happened earlier than other scenes you'd seen, it's very nonlinear. Um, yeah, this is this is weird. I guess this got derailed by. Did this get derailed by Casey Affleck's Me Too stuff? It, is that why this have. got I, kind of buried? It feels like it got buried. They, right? they did well. I mean, it got buried partially. I think because of COVID, um, okay. it, it came out theatrically or limit very very limited theatrically during that period. And I remember they actually offered it to us as press, and it was just one of those we don't have room for that right now, so we're not going to do it. Um, but it was enough that I like, okay, keep this in mind. If they offer it, I do want to see it. Uh, and I'm glad yeah. I did. It's affecting. It's, you know, it's based on a true story. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you do want to like, oh, it's the cancer drama. So you, you know, you may have like a resistance against that, but I think Jason Siegel in particular is so winning and so charming that uh, he keeps you invested um, even if Casey Affleck's really prickly, even if Dakota Johnson isn't quite like they give her some, gosh, they give her some stuff to play. Mm-hmm. And, and she's just, it's not that she's not good. I think she's, I think she's, 
she hasn't come into her own as an actress yet to tackle this in the same way that I think somebody else yeah, would have, which is not, I don't want to, she didn't fuck it up, her, but she just yeah. comes short next to the other two actors who also have very intense arcs to play here. Yeah. And I think that's just because of, you know, whatever it is inexperience or, or what have you. She, she anyways, I don't want to, I don't want to make it sound like she's not good in it. I think she's, pushing up against probably the best of her own capabilities at the time that this was shot. Yeah, I agree. Um, but this was a good, it was affecting. It was a good drama. It was, it was always engaging. It's, it's at times funny and charming. You become invested in these people's lives and their story. Uh, this was good stuff and made me kind of go like, Oh, why did this, why did this not get seen? Yeah. It has stars in it and it's good. Why did this not, I think, you know, why is this just getting, is there even a Blu-ray release? No, we got DVD the, you know, only, we only DVD. DVD. I like, think it's yeah. literally just one of those things. It was inexpensive to make, uh, probably other than the star's salaries. It's, it's very good, but it's not good enough that it would have won awards probably in any given award season, maybe acting, but probably not. Uh, cause I, it's just not, it's not quite at that level that they were like, well, we have to put out some stuff to make money that we have on our table during COVID and the hope that VOD will make some money from it. And that sort of thing is always, it was a, a crapshoot for any number of films that came out last year. And I think this was just one of them. And because of the nature of that, it was, you know, a sad, simple little tearjerker. I think it just got mm -hmm. ignored. It's not complex, but the characters are so well fleshed out and realistic. I thought that this is a movie that anyone looking for this sort of thing, you're going to find a really exceptional movie in what it does with it. Yeah. Hopefully it'll, it'll find an audience on streaming. I think this is where well, the director did blackfish. Is that who I believe so? Yeah. Yeah. So this is somebody who, you know, they're doing their first narrative after some hit documentaries and um, it, it, it sucks. We've seen that happen to documentary uh, documentarians before where their first narrative feature just gets ignored. Right. And this doesn't really, it, it's too, it's too good to be ignored. So I hope it does find a life uh, on home video. I hope so too. Uh, there's only one extra here, which is a 16 minute sort of behind the scenes featurette with the cast and crew, which is, you know, EPK, but charming enough. You know, it's kind of nice after you watch a film that leaves you kind of a wreck to watch something where, oh, they're all alive and happy again. <laughs> so maybe worth watching for that reason. Just to, whew, I need to, I'm feeling a little verklempt here. I need to get it, get that out. Anyway, our last film is one that you've heard us talk about before. Well, you've heard me talk about before on the site, but now is out on 4K and Blu-ray. That is Wonder Woman 1984, the sequel to the previous uh, 2017 Wonder Woman, also directed by Patty Jenkins, who did that one with a script written by Jeff Johns and Dave Callahan, based on a script story by Johns and Jenkins. Gal Gadot returning as Diana Prince slash Wonder Woman. And I wondered, OK, so it's like still a period piece, but it's a later period piece. Right. All right. 80s is heroes in the 80s. We haven't seen a lot of the hero movies set as a reverse period piece in the eighties. How are they going to do this? Also, how are they going to do this without Chris Pine being there? Well, they fell back on some old chestnuts of like, okay, well we did. Don't worry about it. There's a, there's a goofy and some people found very offensive, which I still kind of, okay, sure. <laughs> uh, way that they make Chris Pine be in here and they have him be a whole fish out of water story. But really that's not the problem with Wonder Woman 1984. And you can listen to our full highly suspect review. If you want to get deep into the plot here, if you don't want to see the film, but want to know more about what it's about, 
But the problem is that it's like many superhero sequels. It goes, well, now we need two villains. And splitting time with two villains, it's a chancy proposition at best with superhero films, and it rarely works. And here it doesn't work either. Split between Cheetah, uh, uh, played by uh, uh, Christian Wig, and Max Lord, played by Pedro Pascal. I know a lot of people gave shit to Pedro Pascal because he's so over the top, but I'll be honest, he was my favorite thing about this movie because he was so over the top. He was at least fun to watch as the bad guy. Everybody else in this thing I felt like is just kind of coasting on old movie tropes, like really old movie tropes. And like, there's even the joke I must've seen five times before where there, she's showing a wonder woman showing Steve Trevor at an art museum. And he goes up to a garbage can and he's like looking at it. And she's like, no, that's just a garbage can. Like we've seen that joke many times before. I can't believe you put that here. There's a lot of stuff like that. All the stuff with Kristen Wiig starts off strong as she's just a character who's kind of like admires Diana Prince for being this independent woman, like they're like have this fun friendship. But then once she starts to have her arc of becoming a villain, I just didn't buy it at all. It just didn't sell. doesn't work. It's goofy and not in a fun way. I don't know, man, even the action in this, there's way too much of like, okay, that's just wire work. And it looks like wire work. I don't know. I, I was not a huge fan of this film. I don't hate it, but I certainly don't really like it a lot. It's long it's redundant and it has no internal logic and all those things, no matter how much goodwill you approach the movie with, which I had a lot of goodwill. Um, it, it is fundamentally flawed problems, like from top to bottom. It's like, you talk about the Maxwell Lord thing and I think his acting is fine. I think the people's problem with it is that all of his scenes, he says the same thing. No matter who he's interacting with, no matter what's going on, you're not getting new information from him. You're not getting character development. You're not getting an expansion of themes. You're getting him telling you the same stuff about he can grant your wish. And then you get that scene over and over and over. The the internal logic of things like, you know, you bring up the Chris Pine thing. I think the, I think the big thing is just an internal logic thing of she could have just wished him back. Yeah. Like, there's no reason for it to be like, oh, he's in somebody else's body. Like, why doesn't he just, why didn't he just reappear? If things are already going to be like arbitrary and magical in that way, why, why even muddy the issue with like possession? <laughs> like, why even, why even do that? Or like the cheetah stuff is like, again, the, the thread of logic there, which is like, oh, I, I had, I had glasses and I couldn't walk in heels and now I can, but that makes men want to have me, but I can't have that. So please turn me into a half cat woman. <laughs> it's like a lot of that, the logic just falls apart. Like there's no like, wait, why? Wait, what? How? Why is that happening? Didn't they just say this? Why are they saying this now? Didn't they just do this? And why are they doing this now? You know, there's the, uh, uh, is it screen rant or screen invasion? Does the pitch meeting YouTube mm-hmm. videos? I think, and I think so. the Wonder Woman one is one of the best ones, and they brought up the point that I didn't consider when I was watching the film, which was, um, well, so what if the wishes were good? What if you wished you could see again, or what if you couldn't walk and you wished that you could walk? You now have to renounce that wish according to the end of the movie. Right. Like you have to say, nope, I don't want that anymore. You know, um, 
There was a lot of stuff. The whole, but the whole thing is built like that. It's all just, it's a broken ass movie. Yeah. And there's, it's a cool character. I get it. Wonder Woman is cool. She's iconic. And there's cool scenes in the movie. Totally cool. The mall stuff, Themyscira at the beginning, all kinds of cool stuff. But as a cohesive piece, it's a long mess. In uh, in one sense, yeah. it reminds me of Lucas's defense of the prequels, where he's like, come on, you guys, this is for kids. And it really felt like that's what they came at this with. It's like, it does, like this was made by people who just were never taking it seriously on any level. And were like, what difference does it make? It's Wonder Woman. I guarantee you somebody said that at some point while they were making this film. Like, ah, it's just got to be goofy and colorful and fun. It's like, okay, that works for some stuff. I, I agree. I've, I've seen stuff that that works for contextually, but mm. you're following a, a much better film, one that took it slightly more seriously with one that just is so utterly half-assed. Man, the fight between Wonder Woman and Cheetah is awful. It's muddy. Yeah. It looks it looks like it's from 20 years ago. It's just like uh, there are just so many things here I was just disappointed with. And I, I wish I wanted to like this. I was on I was rooting for this the whole way. Like, it's going to get better. It's going to get better. And it just kind of gets worse. It gets worse. Yeah, it does get worse. But I know people who really liked this and they're putting it out on 4K now uh, with the digital copy as well. And the included Blu-ray, the extras, which are found on the Blu-ray. Um, they're all the type of things you'd expect There's the making of wonder woman 1984 about 36 minutes here which is the only in-depth thing but even so it's kind of what you expect um gal and Kristen friends forever five minutes with the two of them talking about their friendship off screen and on screen small but mighty for 10 and a half minutes which was a look at the op opening scene with the the younger diana lily aspect a actress lily espel who was in the first film as well and shows a little bit of her audition tape from 2015. There are uh, breakdowns of some of the action scenes in here. There's Gal and Chrissy having fun, which is a one minute dance number uh, with the two actors singing and dancing, but it's nothing really special. There's meet the Amazons 21 minute virtual roundtable interview uh, that was at DC's Fandome event here. So if you saw that there, you saw you. That's what's here. There's Black Gold Infomercial, which is a VHS looking version of Max uh, Lord's famous his TV appearance. Uh, there's a six and a half minute gag reel, and there is a retro remix for one and a half minutes, which mixes the original opening theme from the TV show from the 70s. Uh, and then pans and scans its clips from Wonder Woman 84 to make it look like, you know, you know what I'm saying here. I don't know. Yeah. It's it's fine. I like it's not for me. I will rewatch this again someday. It just that day has not come yet. <laughs> there's something about it that kind of feels like a uh, like a rough cut. Yeah. Like it feels there's something weird about it that feels like, oh, there's still a good movie here. You just have to form it like you have to take the clay of what, what was released and like, but it feels like I watched a rough cut of something well, like I'm a producer on it and you went, well, here's our, here's our super long rough version. And now they want notes from they me. Should just, and it's like, no, this is the real version. They should just it's call like, the director what? of Southland Tales and make him make a whole like graphic novel of comic books that like fit in between. If the only cracks. there were some Wonder Woman graphic novels. <laughs> I don't think there are, John. I don't think they've ever done that. Yeah. All right. Well, we've reached the pick of the week, although I'm warning you right now, I'm going to play my rare trump card and go with Day of the Beast. But I want to hear what yours would be. <laughs> so I think that I think that um, uh, was the, the I'm going to get the title wrong. It's not the only friend. It's our uh, friend. Our friend. Um, I think our friend is is the best movie that we watch. Sure. But my pick of the week is Death Has Blue Eyes. <laughs> um 
it's just so much fun and is worth discovering. Again, Chris said it, it could probably be oversold, but when we get these on digital noise, a lot of times we're, we're just like, I don't know what this is. Let's see. And this took me by surprise and I love a movie that surprises mm-hmm. me. So death has blue eyes. Like I said, I'm going to, I almost never do it, but this week I got to trump you because I, I can't tell you how pleased I was with the entirety of the package of day of the beast, which has so much bonus features, so much to offer. It's unbelievable. It's on 4k. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to outvote you this one time. It's all right. Uh, are you sure you're not mad? Right. I'll let you have okay. it. Okay. I'll let you have it. No, I'm just going to conjure the devil later and you'll just sleep. No, well. he's already here. He's taking a nap in the other room. We had a big night last night. Oh, that's so Chris. Yeah, I was kissing his butt. For the devil to already be yeah. there. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for this week's Digital Noise. Thank you, John Golson, for joining me. And we'll be back very soon with another Digital Noise with Aaron joining us for a look at some other new home release titles. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you then. <laughs>